Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, we look at the Oscar 2022 nominations. Not only are we getting more diversity, we're also getting more international interest. So we've got Drive My Car, we've got Flea, which is an astonishing film. Plus, we explore the Swiss architectural influence on a small town in the American Midwest. They decided spontaneously to kind of make their houses or their businesses look Swiss from the outside to attract tourism. All that and much, much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a powerful story from Monaco's Thomas Lewis. He's in Ottawa now, covering for us the so-called freedom protests. He reports about the intimidation of journalists being felt on the ground. Let's have a listen. The truckers needed some help for uh, being encouraged this week. The police did a couple of threats that were absolutely useless. Anyway, so we came to support the truckers, basically. Where, you know, and why do you support them? Why do I support them? Because they are the voice that we've all had that hasn't been heard for the last two years. Or let's say, whatever, last 18 months, whichever. How long will it take for Trudeau to, you know, to start listening? He hasn't open dialogue with anyone about you know the situation forever he's a one-way street so i don't know the risks of taking this liquid like my son said that we don't know what's in it we don't know you know how much mercury is in this thing is there any aluminum we don't have the full list of ingredients why would they take that i don't trust pfizer much i mean they don't have the best track record but that's my personal opinion We've brought donations in, we've handed money out to the truckers because the GoFundMe wouldn't give money, so we've collected in our community and gave money. We're from uh, Renfrew County, there was a group of us, and we've also come and delivered pizzas and, and donairs and chicken wraps and yeah, just bringing food, whatever supplies they need. We can't bring gas apparently or we'll get arrested, but whatever we can help with, we come and see whatever we can bring every day and sometimes I spend the night if I can find a hotel, but there's no hotels available, so it's just all love. I've never seen anything like it. It's so beautiful. And who's donating food and money? Who are, who are those people in your community? Just people who are Canadians who want their freedoms back. Yeah, real true Canadians who just love Canada and who want who want to live again and not be masked and locked up and without work if they don't get a vaccine and you know the vaccines have obviously not worked and uh, we just we just need to get back to living life again. I'm so sorry for your loss. Why was it important for you to, to come and with your son's picture to the, the convoy? I want to uh, show the people that uh, we're trying to support this movement. There was uh, some stuff going on in the stage tonight about uh, all the injuries and, and the loss of life. And in our case, it was a loss of life. So we don't have to share to people what really happened to this. There's some people that you don't know down the road it could affect them. In our case, it did affect us quite a bit last year. I want to be able to see my, my family. I want to be able to not have restrictions that kids can't see their grandparents. 
the, with all these restrictions, uh, limits on uh, how many people can meet, and the the, vices, the division that our prime minister is causing. We want a freedom of choice. That's the whole thing. We want a freedom and the freedom of choice. I was a medical radiation technologist doing your CAT scans and x-rays for 39 years and I got fired because I wouldn't take the jab. I was lucky that I was 60 years old and I could afford to collect my pension now and retire, whereas a lot of my colleagues were young women with families and mortgages to pay and they couldn't afford it, so they were coerced. They felt like they had been raped after they took that job. They cried, some of them. It's a horrible position to be in. I don't believe in uh, the vaccine and I believe there's a lot of harm that comes from having the vaccine and I believe more in natural medicine. Like I used to hear Trump talk about fake news and I thought he was an idiot and uh, my eyes were closed at that time. Since all this started happening, I'm awake and it is fake news. You, on mainstream medium, you see the exact opposite of what's happening right here in this movement. This insurrection as they call it. And, and you roll your eyes at that. Does that mean you don't think it's an insurrection? Oh or do you think gosh. there's change coming? Absolutely not. It's nothing but peace and love. I spent three days here the first this started. And I'm back today with another friend. And she's experiencing it for the first time today. And I told her what a positive, energetic experience. You won't believe it. Even though there's not near as many people here through the week as there is on the weekends. But uh, but she's feeling the love, aren't you, Sarnia? I feel the love. <laughs> Justin Turdo. <laughs> Turdo. <laughs> He's the biggest asshole worst thing that's ever happened to this country. And then his father was the next worst thing. Trudeau's very, very good at dodging direct answers. And, and he can talk for, for hours and not actually answer questions. Yeah. He's a good dancer. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thomas, and for all your report from Ottawa this week. Let's move on now to one of my favorite topics, the Oscars. The nominations came out this week, but what film critic Karen Krizanovich thought of the nominations? Let's find out. It's such a big day yesterday. It is. It's like your birthday. Wait, it was exciting, wasn't it? Yeah, it was it really was, exciting. Everyone was back. And back with a capital B. Yes, 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 yes. And people are going back to the movies and people are taking interest and they're going, hey, wait a minute, I haven't seen Drive My Car, but it's three hours. Do I have to see it? Yes, you do. Um, right, so it looks like Power of the Dog, which is on Netflix, um, much to the consternation of exhibitors, uh, is up for lots and lots and lots of things. And if you haven't seen it, Watch it. I didn't like it the first time. I loved it the second time. Why? Um, I don't know. I got the story arc a little bit more. I expected it to be a little bit different. And in a way, I found it a little predictable. But the performances are amazing. Cinematography is lovely. The story is beguiling. And um, it's, I mean, Ari, Ari Wegner uh, was the first, uh, first female cinematographer, Power of the Dog, nominated, which is, you know, you look at it and you think this is just a beautiful film. And as we were just hearing a moment ago from Rachel Puppetsoni, a huge coup for Jane Campion. Yeah, yeah, really good. She's the she'll be the the only female director to have won two Oscars if she wins this. Also, what I think is interesting, we're talking about um, Australia. Were we talking about Australia, we New were. Zealand? Um, Jenny Bevan is down there right now working on the sequel to to Mad Max, and she is up for uh, an Oscar for Cruella. 
for the, the costumes in Cruella. And even though it's a really strong year for costumes, sorry to be slipping right into costumes and ignoring all the actors. Um, you know, she, she is such a creative force. And um, I don't, I think it's, it's a tough, I think she's going to win. I hope so. Good. Lovely. Right. Let's go back to the, to the I could talk about costumes all day. I could too. Um, let's talk about the other films though. So we, we have um, Power of the Dog being mm. huge. 12 nominations. 12 nominations. Right. number one. Mm-hmm. Number two. Dune with close second with 10. That's a big surprise. In certain ways. Uh, it's up for best film, isn't it? And yeah, quite it a lot of people have raised an eyebrow. But not best director. And they're thinking, well, what? And you know why? The Peter Jackson effect. They're waiting for part two. Ah. Uh-huh. So calm down. Don't Is make that any strategic. Bets. I'm sure. Yes. I thought that people just went to the cinema and looked at the film and thought, "I like them. I'm going to nominate them." Well, they, they do. The they do sometimes. Work. The popcorn doesn't get in the way. But you know, it's this is this is part two. So you know, we're waiting for part two. So we're going to wait and see how well he does with that. What I thought was a big surprise, and it, it's been leading all season, is Belfast, Kenneth Branagh's biopic. Um, beautiful design, which didn't get didn't get a nominated, unfortunately. But uh, it's Belfast has seven nominations. It's tied with West Side Story. And I found it really, really um, sentimental. The woman I, I saw at the screening that I saw was a BAFTA screening, and the woman next to me was crying. And I wasn't. <laughs> it was just what does that say about you rather than the it film? just says maybe I... I got a good night's sleep. I don't know. Hard to say. But uh, a lot of people really love it. A lot of people don't don't like it. It didn't get a vital editing uh, nod, so it might not actually get Best Picture, but it is certainly nominated. And then we're looking at the popular films. Spider-Man, the big runaway blockbuster, one nod for VFX. So Oscars, see, what's interesting about this year, and I'm, I'm, I wanted to structure this a little bit better, was it's a real divider between the new voters that were intake in taken um, just a few years ago and the old voters. For example, in the best actor and best actress categories, we've got nommed actors. We've got people that have either won or been nommed before outside of um, Kristen Stewart's first-time nomination. And another thing is that there's very little overlap with the BAFTAs. So it just goes to show you that the BAFTAs are coming apart from how the Oscar people are voting. Why is that happening? Um, different countries, different different viewpoints. I mean, they couldn't have uh, Kristen Stewart because of you know, royal factors. Um, and also, things are just seen, seen differently here. Americans like sentimentality a little bit more. And they also like safety. For example, we've got Will Smith, who's been nominated three times. He's also listed as a as producer. We want, you know, we've got Bill Cosby. We want Will Smith. We want somebody, you know, who's going to be a positive role model. And Denzel Washington. Tell us a little bit more about whether this is redressing the balance. You're talking about the new intake of voters. Yeah. Remember, you know, we all remember Oscars so white a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Is this being addressed? I, well, yes, it is being addressed. I mean, maybe not as strongly. For example, Ruth Nega didn't get an, uh, a nomination, which we were all hoping that she'd get. Um, but it's slowly, slowly. And also what they've done, I mean, the Critics Circle has also upped its, up, I mean, which I'm the secretary, also upped our, our, our um, intake of a more diverse uh, critics. So I think across the board, and of course it scuppered uh, the Golden Globes, but um, I think that is showing. But also, not only are we getting more diversity, we're also getting more international interest. So we've got 
Drive My Car. We've got Flea, which is an astonishing film. Even if you don't think you're interested in it, give it half an hour. Why? Tell us a little bit more about it. Um, it's, it's a story. It's, it's, it's a documentary, but it's also animated about an, a, a gay Afghan man who, who left and goes to, to Denmark to live. And it's, it's astonishing because you think it's a cartoon, basically. It's animated, but it's a documentary. Karen, one uh, thing. If we had three films to watch between now and April, what would they be? Ooh, okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Come on, quickly, quickly. All right, okay. <laughs> Power of the Dog. Okay. West Side Story. Yep. And Drive My Car. Thanks to Karen there and continuing with the Oscars chat. This week we also spoke with the director of the Oscar-nominated film Flea by Jonas Poher Rasmussen. He tells us how the story came from his personal friendship with the Afghan refugee Amin at the center of the film. My name is Jonas Poher Rasmussen and I'm the director of Flea, which is an animated documentary coming out in the UK on February 11th. The genesis of, of this story really comes from our friendship. I, I met him when I was 15 years old and he was 16. And it really comes from me being fundamentally curious about his story and him all of a sudden wanting to share his story. So to me, it, it wasn't about, you know, I wanted to do a refugee story and then went out and found a refugee. So I thought, because it's a story about a friendship as well, I needed to be in there from the very beginning that that was the thought. And also because it's really a story about, you know, sharing and listening and to really understand how healing it can be to share and i thought okay but then i need to be in there as the ears both of course as myself but also for the audience so you are borrowing my ears for 85 minutes and and are able to listen to i mean sharing his story and seeing how it changes him I really tried not to be too political about it and, and try not to go too much into the different systems because I don't think that's really, that's not my, my, my thing. I don't try to do political films. Of course, it does become political because it's a, it's, a, it's a refugee story. But I really wanted to just, you know, show the human side to it and not try to go too much into what the systems do or what they don't do. Of course, for Amin's sake, we got his file and looked at it and at him look at it and just to see what if there were any legal issues. Luckily, there weren't. He just didn't know. You know, uh, the attorney looked at his file and, and saw right away that, okay, but this guy has been given asylum because he was a minor from a war-torn country. And back then, you know, you were given asylum right away. And he wasn't given asylum at all by his story, on his story. So that was a big relief, of course, for both Amin and for, and for us uh, making the film, that, that we could tell the story and there would be no legal issues for him. And of course, it's it was really important for me to, to keep him safe, that he felt safe. And, you know, the anonymity behind the animation is really a big part of that. And then also in the beginning of the process, doing all the interviews, we kind of agreed that we're just trying it out, that we were just trying out to see if this would work for him to share his story. And for the first year or so, we agreed that he could always say, I can't do this in a way, and he could walk out and we would make the film. So maybe really to make sure that he felt comfortable all along was, was super important to me. But I didn't, you know, start to talk about systems. I think just there are other people who are better at that than me. I, I just wanted to show the human face of being a refugee and, and try to give some nuance to what's to the story that's been told. Most of the story takes place in the past. So uh, often when you work in documentaries that takes place in the past, you, also, you struggle with like, how do we make this feel 
you know, current and vibrant again. And I thought, but animation maybe is a good way to kind of really, you know, recreate Afghanistan in the 80s, recreate Amin's childhood home and Moscow in the 90s and stuff like that, and then make it feel current. But also, you know, Amin, what you hear in the film, what you see in the film is the very first time he talks to, about the story. And it's not easy for him to talk about. So the fact that he could be anonymous behind the animation was actually really what enabled him to start opening up about this story because he hadn't talked about it for, yeah, 25 years. But then also, you know, it's really a story about memory and trauma. And uh, animation really enabled us to be a lot more expressive about these things. So we could, whenever he started to talk about things that's difficult for him to talk about, traumas or, or certain memories, you kind of sense in his voice that he started to talk slower and he became more incoherent. And I thought, okay, but we need to see this in the film because now it's not about what things look like or what 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 happened, but it's about an emotion. And the um, with the animation, we could really be a, a lot more expressive and surreal and somewhat more honest to this emotion than than we could have been with the camera. It became a lot more important to get the story out there, to, to get some nuance to the refugee story, because because all of a sudden, you have, again, we have a new group of refugees arriving. And just because a lot of the time, you know, refugees are, are portrayed very one-sided, very black and white or in headlines. And to just share a story, tell a story that gives some perspective to that, because I mean, the story took place more than 20 years ago. And also because it's told from the inside of a friendship, I, I hope that this story could give some nuance to, to what's going on right now and refugees arriving at our borders. I'm very proud of the film and of course, you know, it, it's such an important story to me. So every time it gets a nice review or it gets an award somewhere, um, it's a further push to get out there and, and to have a broader audience for the film. And I think it's just so important that we have these kind of stories out there that give some nuance to both, you know, the refugee and the gay experience and and, and, and finding out uh, and just showing people uh, how much people can carry, can carry around that you don't see normally. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm of course thrilled that, that it gets a, a life up there. That was Jonas Poet Rasmussen. And please, if you can go, do go and watch Flea this weekend. What a fantastic film. And now Monaco's very own Finn, Marcus Hippie, is here to tell us about the concept of Finlandization. This was the means by which Finland managed its relationship with the Soviet Union. Let's have a listen. It is hard to know if President Macron knows what Finlandization really means, or whether he was very serious with the suggestion that Finlandizing Ukraine might help resolve the crisis. For Finnish people, the term Finlandization stands for a dark, decades-long period when the fear of Moscow impacted decision-making across the society. The basic principle was that exaggeratedly friendly relations with the Soviet Union helped Finland keep its independence. It was the best survival strategy for a small country that shared a long border with Soviet Union, whose population was tens of times bigger. In practice, it was Moscow and the Soviet embassy in Helsinki that were active in letting Finnish politicians know what kind of decisions our bigger neighbor would appreciate. Gradually, the fear of the Soviet Union led to Finland being conditioned and to self-censorship across the society. It became automatic for politicians to try to predict Moscow's reaction in all decision-making. Journalists learned to be careful with their words. It's not a wonder that you can't find a negative word 
word being written about the Soviet Union in the Finnish papers from the 1960s or 70s, what we got instead was articles and programs about the great achievements and great culture of our eastern neighbour. During the era of Finlandization, Finland was on its knees towards the east. That only ended when the Soviet Union collapsed and Helsinki felt like it had more friends in the west. What followed was a long, painful period of self-reflection, and I am not sure if my country has dealt fully with its past even now. So Finlandization of Ukraine may well sound attractive to Russia, but what it would mean for Kiev would be to give away its sovereignty and ambitions to belong to the West in exchange for peace. And what many people of Finland can tell, it's not real independence. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I'm off to Wisconsin now, via Zurich, to hear about Swissness Applied, Learning from New Glarus, a beautiful publication on the Swiss architectural influences on a small town in the American Midwest. I'm American and Nicole is Swiss, and we took a road trip looking across the country from uh, Syracuse to Seattle. And along the way, Nicole mapped out different towns that were of this type. And New Glarus in particular was of interest to us. It's in southern Wisconsin, um, and it's founded by Swiss immigrants. When we drove up through the town, I think Nicole was the one who realized how strange the, the translation of the architectural details were of the buildings along Main Street uh, or the main streets in the downtown commercial district. For me as an American, the town was like a lot of the weekend towns that I would go to as a child um, growing up in, uh, in Seattle. So I was most interested in the fun aspects of it while Nicole immediately as a Swiss immigrant and academic was interested in the kind of translations. In many cases, it, it does look almost like a what you'd imagine like a, a Swiss model village would look like. But how and, and why did this happen? Nicole, could you maybe just explain the history of how such a, a settlement in the middle of America can be so Swiss, if you like? Well, the town was uh, founded by Glarner that were immigrating um, from Glarus, uh, Switzerland in 1845. And in the beginning, actually, the town looked very American. So there was a main street with normal kind of buildings with parapets, so very American. And there was an economic downturn in the 1960s. And so their local pet uh, milk company actually closed, which was occupying most of the villagers. And they had to find a new way of survival, let's say. And so they, they decided to make, the businessman actually of the town decided spontaneously to kind of make their houses or their businesses look Swiss from the outside to attract tourism. This is probably the part of the town that is most interesting to us. It's called First Street, but it's the main street of the old town that has these American buildings from the 1800s and then in the front, there are elements like balconies attached or shutters attached to it or whole fronts that look um, Swiss, so to speak, or a general style of Swiss, I guess. This was really popular and people started traveling to the town uh, to get the Swiss experience. Um, later on in 1999, the town actually implemented a code called 
Swiss architectural theme into the building codes, which uh, stated or, or ensured, let's say, that the future buildings in the commercial districts keep their uh, Swiss approach and they actually their Swiss appearance. And um, so any renovation or new building or anything that gets built to the outside has to look Swiss. And the code is really interesting in that sense that it, it has a lot of picture books implemented and photographs of Swiss chalets and uh, mostly refers to these typical Swiss elements of uh, chalets, like uh, the shutters, the doors and so on. And that's why we see what we see today um, like a kind of mixed style of the different styles of Swiss chalets from the different parts of Switzerland. As you mentioned there, um, obviously, if, it, if much of it is based off imagery, has anything kind of been lost or even added in, in translation? Um, Jonathan, obviously, one thing that I did find particularly interesting was that, that it mentions how interpretations of the, the archetypal Swiss chalet has led to some admittedly unusual architectural combinations. Do you have any examples of how this might have happened? In one of our chapters, we talk about the the different time periods that we believe the buildings went through uh, from the 1930s to the 50s and 60s to the 70s to the 90s. And then finally, the adoption of the Swiss theme code in um, 1999 is, is producing a, a new time period. Um, with the photographs that were collected for the design review committee. And as a result of these different time periods, there have been many changes, not just in terms of what kind of images people were looking at, but also who was looking at the images. So initially it would have been ancestor or descendants of the original Swiss immigrants uh, who were the businessmen in the 1960s or businesswomen in the 1960s. But now in the 2000s or the 2010s, new buildings have been built by business owners who are not Swiss immigrants who have come to the town for whatever reason they, they wanted to come for. Um, they could be conglomerations that are along the uh, the highway district, they're building um, different building styles or structures. So not just wood frame construction, but these would actually be half timber construction, uh, much larger warehouse types of buildings. In, in essence, the translation of these uh, images and these photographs at such a large size with different materials and structures behind it result in, in new types of buildings or new outcomes. There's this translation from images to the buildings in the U.S., are there any examples of it kind of going back the other way? You know, as we move forward, it's far less focused on standard historical chalets. Is this a new wave of Swiss architecture that we're seeing in the US that maybe hasn't been uh, reflected in, in Switzerland at all, Nicole? You know, that's really interesting. I mean, we do have a large history or a, like an extensive history here of how to design with images. So when I think of like the analog architecture with Aldo Rossi coming to the ETH to teach and then influencing the students, like really thinking of uh, reference images, right? And in, in, so to speak, like not only Swiss, but there's a very Swiss way in a way to design in that, that sense in New Glarus. And so here that still has a standing, I think, tradition in the sense that, especially in the, in the context of preservation where there are alignments with existing older built structures maybe that also um, are getting mimicked of course in a different way with um, different materials and so on but I think there is uh, some sort of a, a lineage <laughs> there as well to design with images and, and reference photographs um, as well so that may be interesting. 
And Jonathan, just kind of continuing along with that, Switzerland has a has very successful history or recent history architecturally, huge and important examples of modernist architecture across the country. Do you think that this Swissness that we're seeing in New Glarus is still an accurate term? Do you think that it's quite hard now to reflect Swissness with such a varied architectural history now? Some people could come at it and say Swissness is the Helvetica font or Swissness is a Le Corbusier-driven uh, modernism. And I don't think they would be wrong because Swissness in, in many ways is how Switzerland is identified by the world outside of it. I wouldn't say just how it expresses itself, but its uh, identity as a brand. And the chalet and the way that the chalet has come to America is an example of that we found when we were in New Glarus that is a really, really interesting way way forward for it. It's fascinating to hear about this phenomenon, which I would never had any idea existed. Maybe just finally, you mentioned there a lot about nostalgia and I guess looking back at the past. In the book, you do also mention that New Glarus can be considered maybe a bit of a testing ground. Um, you know, there's obviously these imprints that people have to kind of abide by, but there's also within that applying this Swissness moniker to building is also going to create quite a lot of interesting new ideas. Maybe Jonathan, just to finish, where do you see this going? And do you think this is something that could maybe evolve? And also, do you think it can last? That's something that we're working on in our practice right now. One of the things we were most interested in when we were interviewing some of the design review committee members is the way that they were now collecting images and the sources of where those images were coming from. So there were no longer postcards of photographs that were being um, taken from Switzerland or from picture books of, of uh, Lower Bavaria, for example, but they're actually uh, digital images found on Instagram, for example, that were being used as evidence of what a Swiss building might look like in New Glorious. And we found that idea to be very enriching for uh, a design practice that you can think about the appearance of something, let's just say Swissness or, or what Swiss chalet should look like, but that appearance is now being impacted or influenced by digital imagery and where that digital imagery may be coming from versus, say, from a picture book and from sources that are possibly vetted by the publishers of that picture book. Maybe something small to add to that is too that I think there's a fast reading of these digital images, right? We just swipe through and we think we understand, which is a very different approach than if you might have a picture book where you have descriptive subtext and so on. So I think there's a big misunderstanding maybe that leads to different versions of what it actually is. And we really enjoy that because we think there's actually probably a potential for new design because of these mistranslations. And we've heard a lot recently about various billionaires and their attempts to get into space, but not so much about what they're going to do once they reach their destination or where they're going to live. A new exhibition at the Danish Architecture Center in Copenhagen is hoping to enlighten us. A local architecture company is presenting its take on the type of building they think the new generation of space explorers are going to need. And they've already tested in a rather extreme environment here on Earth, as our Copenhagen correspondent Michael Booth found out. My name is Sebastian Aristoteles and I'm the co-founder of Sega Space Architects. Why don't we actually go inside your space house? Uh, we call it a space habitat, a moon habitat. 
Auf die. Just going past a little portable toilet and into the cup. Actually, as we were coming in, it suddenly dawned on me this is a maybe a bit of an unpleasant place for you to come back to because <laughs> tell me how long did you actually spend living in here in Greenland? We spent we were two people for 61 days uh, living inside of this four and a half square meter space habitat. I mean, of course, you could go outside, but it was pretty cold and there were polar bears, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, we specifically chose northern Greenland, a thousand kilometers north of the Arctic Circle, almost as far up you can get in Greenland, for the specific reasons that it's very, very cold. Because it's in human nature to cheat. So if you, after 50 days, it would have been easy if you wanted to cheat to go outside. But because it was so cold, we were forced to be inside 95% of the time. So we are standing right here in the, the living quarter, which is where we spend the majority of our waking hours. And then if we look up, we see two sleeping pods. Oh, yeah. So those are the most private parts of the habitat. And in one side I would sleep and in the other side Carl would sleep. So this was actually designed to work both in gravity and without gravity. So the rooms are stacked on top of each other because moving vertically on the moon is very easy because you don't weigh that much. So it was actually a bit harder in Greenland because we still weigh, I still weigh 85 kilograms. Tell me about the genesis of the project. Where did this start? So we are a small architecture studio. We are about four years old. And for the first two years, we worked very theoretically doing concepts of what we believe would be a better way of living in outer space. I think to give some context, for about 50 years, people and the entire space industry have worked on making people survive in outer space. But now, when there's such a big industry, just thinking about that, our purpose is to figure out how do we thrive in outer space? How do we actually make comfortable living spaces, stimulating healthy living environments for future astronauts? And is it on Mars or the Moon? Or Because they're very different environments. Yeah, they are. Yeah, so we both work with in-orbit, on the moon, on Mars. But this space habitat, this simulated moon habitat, is for the moon. It's for the surface of the moon, and very specifically, it's designed to stay at the peak of eternal lights on the moon, which is on the South Pole, which is the destination where humans will set foot in a couple of years. As I was just about to start architecture school, a lot of things were happening in the space industry, and specifically the innovations in travel, in space travel, in rockets. Specifically, or more specifically, SpaceX has been landing rockets and got really good at that. And that created a tiny slice of hope that maybe in my lifetime, people would set foot on Mars. And that was enough for me to say, okay, if there's just a tiny chance that people will go on Mars, and I love architecture, maybe I can create the homes for people on Mars and the Moon. There's been, uh, I think, almost 600 people in space. And there's been engineers and doctors and fighter pilots and all these professionally trained astronauts. And I believe that our professional background shapes the solutions that we see. So we can see all the same problems. People have a hard time sleeping in space. People are alone in space. People are understimulated in space. But our professional background makes us think of different solutions. Tell me about this solution. What's it made out of? How did you come to this conclusion? So this was a long design process. So first of all, the habitat unfolds. So we are standing right now in the unfolded habitat. When it's compact and when it's packed together, it's seven and a half times smaller. 
It weighs 1.6 tons and it's incredibly lightweight because it's made out of aluminum and carbon fiber. There has been made inflatable expanding volumes in space before, but never with rigid panels. So our entire habitat is inspired by origami, the Japanese paper folding technique. And the benefit of rigid panels in the structure is that we can have solar panels on the outside. So we used the sun in Greenland to charge the batteries. So it was a completely off-grid living system, exactly like you would do on the moon. Who are you selling to? How, how do the economics of that work? Yeah, so that took us a while to figure out, but right now we are selling analog habitats, so simulated habitats like this, for research and education. So for example, right now, it's been a year since we got back from the expedition. Right now, we are developing our next habitat for a client in Switzerland. And that habitat is informed by all the things that we learned from this expedition by living in it ourselves, and then it's going to be used for research. Can I ask how much one of these costs? I cannot put an exact number on it, but it's not cheap. It is a pretty expensive structure. Do you dream about going to space? Is that your long-term goal? Are you in touch with Elon Musk? <laughs> we you want to be the first architect in space is what I'm asking. I don't need to be the first architect in space, but I would lie if I said that uh, I did not dream about going to space. Okay. We are in touch with SpaceX, though. So we can count our potential clients on one hand. So right now it's the European Space Agency, Blue Origin, SpaceX and NASA, and the DLR, Deutsche Luft und Raumfahrt. Sebastian's giant origami space egg is on exhibition at the Danish Architecture Centre in Copenhagen until September this year. For Monocle, in Copenhagen, I'm Michael Booth. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're listening to The Curator, our weekly highlights here on Monaco 24. Time now to hear Andrew Muller discussing the furore over Boris Johnson's Jimmy Savile insult to the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. Non-British listeners may be even more bemused than usual by recent developments in British politics. You may have gleaned that at Prime Minister's questions in Parliament last week, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, levelled a particular charge at the Leader of the Opposition, Sir Keir Starmer. This Leader of the Opposition, a former Director of Public Prosecutions, Mr Speaker, he spent most of his time prosecuting journalists and failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile, as far as I can make out, Mr Speaker. You may further have heard that this prompted an amount of uproar, very much including from the Prime Minister's own party, and led to the besetting of Sir Keir by a small but menacing mob of seething weirdos from which Sir Keir had to be protected by police. Dealing with the Prime Minister's actual accusation is the easy part. It is nonsense. The idea that Sir Keir, in his pre-politics career as a prosecutor, chose not to proceed against someone called Jimmy Savile has acquired an amount of currency among doers of their own research, and, like many of the notions harboured by this cohort, is at significant variance with reality. 
Sir Keir was Director of Public Prosecutions and Head of the Crown Prosecution Service when Surrey Police interviewed Saville in 2009, but he was not the lawyer who decided that there was insufficient evidence to go to court. There is indeed no evidence to suggest that Sir Keir was involved with the Saville case at all. The CPS retains 3,000 lawyers and deals with nearly a million cases annually. Tellingly, neither Boris Johnson nor his apologists have repeated the allegation outside the House of Commons in circumstances where they would not be protected by parliamentary privilege and where one would not require Sir Keir's legal expertise to sue them into the middle of next decade for uttering such a defamation. At which point we must address the question of why the invocation of Jimmy Savile's name has become such a potent taboo. There are many long versions of Savile's story, and none are recommended for the squeamish. The very condensed version is this. From the 1960s almost up until his death in 2011, Jimmy Savile was an extraordinarily popular light entertainer, disc jockey, television presenter and charity fundraiser, without doubt one of the most famous people in Britain. His catchphrases entered the popular lexicon. He was a friend and confidant of the famous and powerful, including Margaret Thatcher and Prince Charles. He was, in due course, knighted by both the Queen and the Pope. I don't think one ever thought that there could ever be a woman Prime Minister of Britain. You know, we didn't, Jimmy, in those days, did we? Throughout this remarkable ascent from a rough working-class Great Depression childhood in Leeds and early adulthood as a coal miner, lurid stories had circulated about Savile's personal conduct. Playground whispers, urban legends, which Savile himself often seemed happy enough to laugh along with. Very swiftly after Savile died, however, it became clear that not only was it pretty much all true, it was some way worse than anyone might have dared imagine. A monster had spent decades hiding in the spotlight. Each day brings new shocking allegations, the latest suggesting he used his charity work to gain access to the young and the vulnerable. It is hard to overstate the degree to which Britain was bewildered by this. The thousands who enabled Savile and the millions who adored him all having to admit to themselves that they'd been duped. He agreed to do this documentary with me. At some level, he must have known that he had these secrets and that he saw me, he sized me up and thought, you know what, I can give this guy two weeks or three weeks of access and make a documentary about me and I'm not too worried that he's going to uncover the fact that I'm a um, sexual predator. And, you know, in a sense, in that calculation, he was correct, which is, you know, rather galling. As to how Savile got away with it, who knows? A combination, perhaps, of a psychopath's charm, a widespread willingness to submit to celebrity, and the reluctance of Britain's grandees and gatekeepers of public life to be seen questioning the credentials and behaviour of a rare, authentically proletarian presence. But the revelations were, and have clearly remained, potent catnip to that cohort of foil-hatted fulminators obsessed with the morbid fantasy that the world's power structures are an elaborate front for some vast sex-trafficking racket.
Boris Johnson's summoning of Savile Spectre was not merely devious, nasty and grotesque, but irresponsible. Two British MPs, Joe Cox and Sir David Ames, have been assassinated within the last six years. A delusional conspiracist has been convicted for one of these murders. A trial is pending over the other. It is somewhat heartening that the manoeuvre appears to have played badly for Johnson. Several of his senior staff decided it was the last straw and quit. His long-serving policy adviser, Manira Mautzer, usually a dauntless culture warrior, left a roasting resignation letter, making clear her view that the invocation of Savile was an inexcusably low blow. In a blistering resignation letter, Mirza said, this was not the normal cut and thrust of politics. It was an inappropriate and partisan reference to a horrendous case of child sex abuse. I hope you find it in yourself to apologise for a grave error of judgement. It is not too late for you, but I'm sorry to say it is too late for me. There has been furore among the Conservative backbenchers and awkward disquiet from the Cabinet. You know, it's a question for the Prime Minister rather than me, and there's probably not much more I can add other than what I've already said. As of Prime Minister's question time this week, Boris Johnson has been disinclined to apologise. He has instead said that the gaggle who gathered about Sir Keir Starmer yelling stuff about Jimmy Savile are entirely culpable for their own actions. This is true in as much as all grown adults are. It is also the case that public discourse cannot and should not be tailored primarily to avoid inflaming the strangest or silliest people who may hear it. Under such strictures, nobody would ever say anything. But the same standard surely applies to Boris Johnson. He chose to play the Savile card. He understands the peculiar power of this particular folk demon. He knows the allegation is bogus, and he knew whose ears it would prick. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. We need always a food story here on The Curator. Let's speak now to the man behind Hackney Cottery in London. He explains how to ferment Jerusalem artichokes at home and what to serve with them. My name's Dom. I'm the head chef of the Hackney Cottery, so a fairly new restaurant in East London. The dish I'm going to be talking about today is our fermented Jerusalem artichoke dish. So Jerusalem artichokes at the moment, uh, peak sort of season, a little bit different to what you'd find on the shelves. So what we do is we take our Jerusalem artichokes and we lacto-ferment them for 14 days. Super simple to do at home, you just weigh the weight of the artichoke and then take a 2% salt concentration and then just leave them effectively at room temperature, preferably in a sealed bag or sealed container for the fermentation to happen. Once that's happened, we sort of serve with a white onion puree and a mackerel bone broth. So the whole sort of idea of this dish is in the ethos of our restaurant, uh, zero waste. So we take mackerel bones, easy to get from your fishmongers, they normally try and give you them for free. So we use that to infuse a dashi, which is basically the Japanese stock consisted of kombu, vegetable skins, and uh, shiitake mushrooms, water, and then just soaked for 24 hours, and then slowly sort of simmered on the stove for about 40 minutes, just to get the flavor out of the vegetables. 
That then is infused with the mackerel bones to give it a sort of really deep umami sort of flavour that you get from fish bones instead of using sort of katsubushi which would be more of a traditional style of dashi. However, katsubushi tends to be made in Japan which is obviously not very economically friendly or environmentally friendly for a sort of sustainable restaurant side of it. Like I said, that dish is served with a white onion puree. Really simple. The white onion puree is just white onions that we've sweated off in a little bit of garlic oil. You could use any oil at home. It wouldn't be necessarily had to be garlic oil, but we just like to add in that extra sort of flavour in the background. We do actually add garlic in as well, and then it's finished with rice flour and uh, silken tofu. So what's the silken tofu and the rice flour here? It's just given the puree body. If you make a lot of purees at home, or any instance, you find that different purees are going to have different types of body. Onions don't really have much body, so when you blitz them up, they tend to go more to a sort of a soupy consistency. Whereas if you were to use more of a cauliflower, that's going to go to give it a lot of body. So yeah, we add the rice flour to give it the body, and then the silken tofu gives it like a very nice creaminess, which you wouldn't otherwise get from an onion. So if you imagine the dish at the moment, you've got the bowl, we've got the white onion puree, you've got your broth, you've also got these artichokes. So now the next thing to do with the artichoke, the artichokes would be raw at this point, would be fermented. So we've fermented them for 14 days, take them out, they sort of smell very sour, but they are raw, so they're going to be super hard. The next step in preparing the artichokes, cut them in half, scoop out the centres, cook the shell of the artichoke in the fryer, so 160 degrees, about five to 10 minutes, so quite low, just to caramelise it and crisp it up. The centre of the artichoke is then pureed down, so cooked out on the stove, very similar to the onion puree as well. So, you know, sweat it out slowly, finish with a little bit of garlic, and then just puree. So this puree itself is gonna be quite tangy. It won't need rice flour, and it won't need silk or tofu, as it already has a lot of body. So now, let's have a think what we've got. We've got the white onion puree, which you've simply made. You've got your mackerel bone broth, you fermented Jerusalem artichokes and your Jerusalem artichoke puree. The next thing to do really for this dish is we just assemble it quite simply in a bowl. So the whole thing is very, looks very simple, but then when it comes to the flavour, you've obviously got heavy amounts of flavour from the mackerel bone broth and from the fermented artichokes itself. So we like to, in the restaurant, this is present dishes that sound quite scary on paper, but look quite easy on the eye. Uh, I think it's just an easy way of getting people to, to dig into something that might otherwise be a little bit hard to fathom. So in the bottom of the bowl, a nice amount of white onion puree, sort of in a circular sort of pattern. On top of that, you put your Jerusalem artichoke. This is just the shell. Inside of the shell, we like to put the Jerusalem artichoke puree. And then we just finish the whole thing with a, a nice layer of chives. So they just go on top of the Jerusalem artichoke. And then the dish is finally finished with the mackerel bone broth. So the sort of idea is when you look at the dish, you have a nice white puree. On top of that, you have the Jerusalem artichoke covered with green chives. And then the whole thing almost looks like a bit of a boat floating within the mackerel bone dashi. So like I say, the whole ethos of that is just to present it, like I said, in a simple clean cut way, but then when you're eating it, you're like, wow, this is certainly not what you'd expect it to be. And yeah, that's our Jerusalem artichoke dish. Finally on the show, with the Winter Olympics in Beijing underway, winter resorts everywhere are hoping for bumps in attendance, as enthusiasts eager to imitate the feats of world-class athletes take to their local slopes. 
but even as they grapple with the lingering effects of the pandemic, ski resorts have yet another challenge to confront, ensuring snow in a warming climate. For solutions, we look now to the Dolomite Mountains of northeast Italy, where officials and businesses have been trying to turn the tide in their favor. Monaco's Milan correspondent Ivan Carvalho ventured up the mountain and came down with this report. Every four years, the Winter Olympics ensure alpine events get widespread coverage and turn many onto skiing. That's great news for winter sports destinations. Combined with easing COVID restrictions, people are getting back on their skis. Marco Papalardo is marketing manager at Dolomiti Superski, a network of 16 ski resorts, 450 lifts, and 1,200 kilometers of slopes in the northeastern Italian Alps. We are feeling enthusiastic about the winter season. We started in November and people are coming back. We were rather prepared to a great motivation. They were expecting two years to come back to the Dolomites to ski. Papalardo and his team have been working hard to attract newcomers. This year, Dolomite Super Ski Resorts signed up to the worldwide ski pass system called ICON. It lets people acquire a single pass valid across continents. People coming from the United States, that means people usually go to Vail or to Park City or to Whistler Mountains. They have not the choice to get to the Dolomites. The Dolomites is uh, in the catalog of your icon, let's say. And they are very interested in iconic location. We have, for example, Cortina or Val Gardena or Alta Badia, which are somehow some brands, even the United States, because of the World Cup, because of uh, the Olympics, uh, they have taken place there. Also the Dolomites. The Dolomites, I would say, is a unique kind of mountain because it's a kind of rock you cannot find in another place in the world. It's just here. You have these wonderful colors during the day, but even at, uh, at sunset, these uh, pink colors, which are really, really fantastic. Over 3,000 skiers from North America using the Icon Pass have joined locals and Europeans from Germany and elsewhere on the well-manicured slopes of the Dolomites this season. But Papalardo knows there is another challenge facing winter sports venues, warming temperatures. Regarding the climate change, we are very concerned about that. As we say, we are one of the innovative ski destinations in the world. That means that all the ski resorts every year, they are investing some 100 million average every year in innovating snowmaking systems, cannons, slopes, uh, uh, new lifts, and so on. A recent article in the journal Current Issues in Tourism warns of the risks in the coming decades to resorts, including several former sites of winter games, to rising temperatures, and the ability to offer fresh powder to snow sneakers. Fortunately, the Dolomites is home to Techno Alpine, a world leader in snowmaking equipment, and a supplier to this year's games. Based in Bolzano in South Tyrol, Techno Alpine's snow guns, which are painted yellow and resemble small engine turbines, provide a key weapon in the fight against climate change. One who is thankful for their products is Thomas Odendaller, head of marketing at the Oberregen Ski Resort. Yeah, the use of technical snowmaking systems helped us to compensate shortening of natural snow. Between natural snow and technical snow, there's actually no difference. Both are made out of the same components, uh, water and air. The only difference is that technical snow is made and produced uh, through a machine. So each year we invest uh, around uh, 10% of our 
uh, turnover uh, yearly in snowmaking and now for 50 kilometers of ski slopes we have over 200 uh, cannons and those are supplied from our reservoir where we collect all year over rainwater and snow melt and from these reservoirs the water goes to the snow guns uh, over a pipeline which is uh, been planted by Techno Alpine and, and so we, we are able to start season at the end of November. At the Beijing Games, Techno Alpine has supplied some 350 snow guns to cover venues as organizers chose sites not known for plentiful snowfall. The day after meeting Odenthaler, Mother Nature gave locals a break with the dusting of fresh snow at Oberregen, which sits below the striking Latamar Massif and where the ski season runs until April. To maximize their venue, Oberegen offers night skiing too on illuminated slopes. These measures help make the economics work, and tourism officials are keen to maximize the existing ski infrastructure year-round. Marco Papalardo from Dolomita Superski. Our vision for the future is that the Dolomites should be positioned as a destination all over the year. It means people which are coming to the Dolomites they should enjoy it during the summer, during spring, winter, fall, and so on. In winter, they can go to ski. During the summer, they can experience hiking or biking and, and other kind of activities which Summer in the Dolomites offers them. And the lifts are a way of moving in the mountain because not everybody can move, for example, from their villages where they have their lodgements, their hotels and so on to the top of the mountains. The lifts are some kind of help to move people to the peak of the mountains where they can start their hiking or they have a bike which they can, for example, rent and then can have, a, let's say, an excursion with the bike. Reducing car traffic, improving infrastructure, and using technical snowmaking to supplement natural snow are important tools for winter resorts, ones that we need to improve on even more in the coming decades as the climate continues to warm. We do. Ones that we need to improve on even more in coming decades as the climate continues to warm. For Monocle, in the Dolomites. I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thank you, Ivan, and that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Christy Evans and David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>